The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1967, Episode 2, April through May. Now this is Atmosphere into Sergeant Pepper. On April 1st, mixing the new album commenced at EMI Studios London. This time we get in the middle of the song. <laughs> On April 3rd, Paul McCartney flew to Los Angeles, California, then flew to visit Jane Asher, who was on holiday in Denver, Colorado. A few days later, the couple teamed up with Beatles roadie Mal Evans. As Jane continued on holiday, Paul and Mal flew back to Los Angeles, where they team up with John and Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and Papas. After which, Paul teams up with the Beach Boys in the studio. At the time, Brian Wilson was working on the song Vegetables, which was intended for the Smile album, but eventually released on Smiley Smile. McCartney was recorded chewing celery. According to Al Jardine of the Beach Boys, he states... The night before a big tour, I was out in the studio recording the vocal when, to my surprise, Paul McCartney walked in and joined Brian at the council. And briefly, the two most influential musical geniuses in the world had a chance to work together. I remember waiting for long periods of time between takes to get to the next section or verse. Brian lost track of the session. Paul would come on the talk back and say something like, Good take, Al. I'm gonna be round. My vegetables, I'm gonna chow down My vegetables, I love you most of all My favorite vegetable If you brought a big brown bag of them home I'd jump up and down and hope you'd toss me a carrot Keep well, my vegetables cart off and sell my vegetables. I love you most of all, my favorite. 
On the 7th of April, during his trip to the U.S., Paul hit upon the idea of the Beatles' TV film about a mystery tour on a coach, a sort of British seaside version of Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters, who were happily driving the highways of California in their multicolored school bus, spreading the LSD gospel. Flying home to England from Los Angeles during the night of April 11th, Paul borrowed a scrap pad from a stewardess and jotted down lyrics for the title song and some ideas for the film itself. Drawing a circle to represent 60 minutes and dividing it into sections representing songs and sketches. A few days later, he showed his idea to the other Beatles. He and John sat down front, but I think in Paul's place in St. John's Wood, and they just like drew a circle, right, and then marked it off like the spokes on the wheel, you know. And it was really, um, you know, we can have a, a song here, you know, we can have this here, we can have this dream sequence there, we can have that there, and they, they sort of mapped it out, but it was a pretty rough. And, after some discussion... And then he came and showed me what his idea was, and this is how it went. It went around like this, the story, and it had it all, you know, think, production, and he says, well, here's the segment, you write a little piece for that. The film was approved. On April 19th, to control their various business interests, the Beatles' tax advisors suggested they form an umbrella company. Formed this day was the company named The Beatles and Company. At the time, the group had large amounts of capital, which they were in danger of losing to the inland revenue. Because you suddenly, you want to go and do something, and somebody said, oh, no, subsection B, clause A, you can't do that, you know. 
And he said, well, why not? Because uh, you know, I'm a human being and that, and haven't I got my rights? I said, well, yes, but you're not allowed to do that. To avoid this from occurring, they chose to invest in a business venture. The Beatles and Company was eventually a new version of the Beatles Limited, their original partnership. Under the new terms, each Beatle took ownership of 5% of the company and a new corporation, which eventually became Apple Corps, would be collectively owned and would control 80% of the Beatles and Company. Apart from songwriting royalties, which would be paid directly to the authors of the individual songs, all money earned by the group would be channeled into the Beatles and Company, which would leave them with a much lower corporate tax rate. The legal partnership covered group, live, or solo work, which was intended to bind the four controllers together for 10 years on a goodwill share issue of £1 million. On Tuesday, April 25th, at EMI Studios number 3, recording started on the song Magical Mystery Tour. The sessions would continue for the next several days, laying down the basic tracks and vocals, along with the vocal overdubs of John and George shouting, All that, roll up, roll up for the Magical Mystery Tour which was taped at slow speed and then speeded up to alter their vocal sound. Magical Mystery Tour, when you mm. started that. I think I read somewhere that you started banging out and you just had the first line, roll up for the Mystery Tour, and you, mm. were, you were playing it and shouting out snatches of words that Mal Evans was trying to write down as you were going along. I mm. don't know. Is that... Yeah, I mean, we would do all that sort of thing. You know, you, you, you try any method, really, you know. Yeah.
On April 29th in London, an event called the 14-hour Technicolor Dream was held at London's Alexandra Place. This was a benefit party for the underground newspaper, The International Times. What would you describe as the purpose of this evening, the 14-hour Technicolor Dream? Oh, well, uh, I think that uh, there's a new period. We're starting a new era, uh, sweeping around as a kind of reaction to uh, various things that have been happening in the world. And it's, um, it makes itself manifest itself in love and sweetness and kindness and flowers and, you know, and so we're just, uh, we're just, uh, we're not initiating anything so much as uh, portraying what is happening. What emotionally do you expect to do for everybody here tonight? It's just some, in a way, a kind of giant communion in a way. The organizers of this country's first major psychedelic event chose May Day Eve for their all-night ritual and Alexandra Palace as their temple. They offered the Queen and the Prime Minister free admission and charged 7,000 other people a pound a head. Back at John Lennon's home in Weybridge, Lennon and John Dunbar saw a news item about the event on the television while they were tripping on LSD, and both decided to attend. Lennon called his driver, who took them to the venue. The 14-hour Technicolor Dream was a multi-artist happening featuring poets, artists, and musicians. The headline act was Pink Floyd, and the other performers included Arthur Brown, Soft Machine, Tomorrow, The Pretty Things, and Yoko Ono. This marked John's second time seeing Yoko Ono as she performed her happening titled Cut Piece. May Day is traditionally a pagan festival celebrating fertility, which was why, said the organizers, this piece was called A Pretty Girl is Like a Manifesto. It seems any number can play this new form of artistic Russian roulette. All you need is a pair of scissors, a pretty girl, and enough volunteers to snip off her clothing piece by piece. On May 15th, Paul met Linda Eastman for the first time at a London nightclub called Bag of Nails. I met Paul at a club in London. The Bag of Nails, to be exact. Some other people had walked in and they sat not next to our table, but the one beyond it. And Paul of the Beatles was with that group. We were both seeing Georgie Fame perform with the Blue Flames. Come on and close your eyes. fabulous. I looked over and I saw her, thought, well, she looks good. Our eyes met and it was one of them. We kept looking at each other. So I thought, right, here goes nothing. I stood up. He sort of mingled over my way. 
And we, I knew the people Paul was with, actually, and so it just started chatting and all that kind of rot. And so I said, oh, hi, uh, oh, there, my name's Paul, what's yours? You know, she said, oh, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> Did you learn a lot about her that night, that, like, that she was a photographer? Didn't really get too deep into what she was doing. I knew she was a photographer. I was the Fillmore East staff photographer. So many acts would play there constantly. The Who, Jimi Hendrix, B.B. King. I had no idea I was photographing future icons. It was music and people that I loved. Then I went to England to do a book called Rock and Other Four Letter Words. When I was in London, I took my portfolio over to where the Beatles had their office and I said, I'm desperate to photograph the Beatles. A few days later, the assistant said to me, Brian loved your photographs. In fact, he loved them so much that he's having a little press get-together for the release of Sgt. Pepper. You can come to that. On May 17, 1967, the Beatles were in Studio 2 at EMI Studios London working on a new John Lennon song. It is a quirky, anything-goes song conjuring up a seedy nightclub atmosphere. Let's listen to John's early May composing tape, and then we'll go to the EMI studios and listen to the May 17th session.
On May 19th, the album was launched with a press evening at Brian Epstein's London flat. That was the night Paul met Linda Eastman. For the second time. She was one of the only people who got into uh, the launch of Sgt. Pepper. She took a couple of good pictures mm. of uh, the Beatles. You remember that one of me and John doing a big sort of, ha ha. Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice picture. I mean, one of the first things I noticed particularly was the way she held the camera. She had a sort of way with these very long, slender fingers. There's a picture of me looking up at him, and it went out in the wires. That was the first photo taken of us. Mm. American photographer Linda Eastman, seen chatting to Beatle Paul McCartney. And then after that, I went back to New York. Thought, well, probably never see each other again. Cynthia Lennon remembers. At the launch party for Sergeant Pepper, John was high, and the journalist Ray Coleman, who later wrote a biography of him, was seriously worried about his health when he met him that night. Not only was John clearly drugged, he was smoking and drinking heavily and looked haggard, old and ill. 
His eyes were glazed and his speech was slurred. Ray had mentioned his concern to Brian, who had replied, Don't worry, he's a survivor. I, too, was worried about John's health. The drugs had ruined his appetite, and he did indeed look terrible. I feared he might kill himself. John had always had the potential to self-destruct, and now he seemed hell-bent on fulfilling it. To do that which has to be done to be a Beatle or an Al Jolson or any of those things, I really think there isn't one of them that isn't either on drink or dope. And the thing, that's what puts me off touring, apart from the job of pulling a group together and, and whipping them into shape and putting myself in front of the public, which I can deal with, is that it's almost impossible to do that kind of thing without using something, either drink or some kind of dope, to go, to go through it. Cynthia Lennon. I found it hard to understand his attraction to drugs. Was it a way of blotting out the pain of his childhood? It seemed to me that initially success had done that. In the first couple of years, as the Beatles soared, John had been on a high and his confidence had blossomed. But eventually the fame and idolising had become too much and I believe he had turned to drugs to escape. He soon became addicted to them. The chasm between us was widening. I still wanted a stable family life and a loving relationship with John, but he was restless. With the end of life performing, he was looking for something else to give direction to his life. I knew that despite the barrier the drugs had placed between us, John still loved me. In his lucid moments, he would put his arms around me and tell me so. But although he cared deeply for Julian and me, his addiction to drugs would keep him away from us, and he was most definitely addicted. And John fully admits that the first acid trip was a mind-bender. It was insane going on London on it, and we thought when we went to the club, we thought it was on fire, and then we thought it was a premiere. It was just an ordinary light outside. And we were cackling in the street, and then you know, people were shouting, shouting, let's break a window. You know, we were just insane. I mean, we just had our heads, and people had come up to me. And we finally got, we got in the lift, and we all thought there was a fire in the lift. It was just a little red light, and we were all screaming like that. And, it, and we all arrived on the floor, because this was a discotheque that was up a building, you know. We got, and the lift stops, and the door opens, and we all go, ah! And we just see that it's the clock, and then we walk in, you know, sit down, and we're on the tables elongating. I think we went to eat before that, and it was like in the thing I'd read about opium, where the table suddenly... I suddenly realised that it was only a table like this, with four of us, but it went this long. Just like I'd read somebody, who's the Blake, is it? Somebody describing the effects of the opium in the old days. And then we went to the outlive and all that. And then some oh. singer came up to me and said, can I sit next to you? And I was like, only if you don't talk! Because <laughs> <laughs> I was, just couldn't think. I was just terrified. But it was fantastic.
I was aware of them smoking pot. I wasn't aware that they did anything really serious. Um, in fact, I was so innocent that I actually took John up into the roof when he was having a, an LSD trip, not knowing what it was. I never took it in the studio. Once I did accidentally, I thought it was taking some uppers. And uh, I, I was not in a state of handling it, you know, but I took it and then I just thought, it. I said, I'm so scared on the mic, you know. I said, what was it, you know? I said, I feel ill, I thought I felt ill. And, and it was going, I thought it was going to crack, you know, and then I, I said, I must get some air. And they all took me upstairs on the roof and George Martin was looking at me funny, you know. And then it dawned on me, I must have taken acid. So the only place I could take him to get fresh air was on the roof. And we went up there and it was a wonderful starry night and he looked up, went to the edge of the 18-inch parapet and looked up at the stars and said, Isn't, aren't they fantastic? And of course, the, to him, they would have been especially fantastic, I suppose. Um, they were just little stars to me at the time. On May 20th, the BBC announced they would ban the song Day in the Life from the new album because it might encourage drug-taking. Have the mic on the piano quite low, this, just keeping it like maracas, you know. You know those old pianos. Hey, 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 hey,
The musical papers, which you used to read, were started to slag us off because we hadn't done anything, because it took five months to record. And I remember with great glee seeing in one of the papers, oh, the Beatles have dried up. There's nothing coming from them. They've been in the studio, they can't think what they're doing. And I was sort of sitting, rubbing my hands, saying, you just wait. Sergeant Pepper, next. For more information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. 
See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally... We'll do an all-star We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once. That is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't even (laughs) lying. (laughs) The fabulous record, which was such a hit for Georgia fame and the Blue Flames, Yeah, Yeah. One, two,